Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. Let's talk about the joy of getting in an ice-cold bed in the summer. It's really actually awesome. But now it's not summer. Nope. And let's talk about the joy of getting into an ice-cold bed in the winter. That's less awesome, especially for me. You freak out. Yeah. You actually get mad. Yeah. Our room is really cold. It's so awesome. cold room plus freezing cold bed in the winter is not my favorite. So one of the things that we love about our Doc Pro, it's like a romantic thing. I turn on your Doc Pro before we go to bed and your bed is 95 degrees. It's so toasty. I put my foot over there one day and I was like, hmm. Note to self. So I started jacking my bed up. Now I jump into bed. It is so warm when I get in there. And then I slam on the brakes. Yeah. So I get into bed. My bed is 95. I turn it down to 84 where I've been sleeping lately. And you want to know what's crazy? I start to I've drift been, down. I've been sleeping at 81. Aww. Lower than you. Ice cold, baby. Look, one of the things that we have discovered, besides just staying cooler during the sleep and, and preventing the hot flashes, is being able to warm up and cool down your bed. Before you go to bed, this thing has so much power, it's easy to do this, and it's profoundly changed my going to bed experience. In fact, my ring last night told me I fell asleep too fast. Well, and, you know, the other thing that's amazing is I'm sleeping at 81 degrees, but then I have the app set so that it ratchets up to about 92 degrees in the very last part of my sleep cycle, so right before I wake up. So I go to sleep really warm, and then I wake up in this cozy, warm bed. It's amazing. Where do I find out more about this, Jay? Head over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save on the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. Go to sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up feeling awesome like we do. Hey, everyone, we just want to remind you that our book Built to Move is due out in just a few short weeks on April 4th, 2023. And we are really excited to actually get this thing out into the world and in everybody's hands. One of the things that I think is really great about this book is we have created 10 vital signs that are objective that you can sort of understand as key elements of your durability and health. And so that you can understand, you don't have to, it's not good or bad, but you're like, oh, I'm below or above one of these vital signs. Maybe I need to focus on it. Help you to illuminate some of the blind spots in your life. That's just one of the many things you can learn from this book. Head on over to builttomove.com to learn more and order a copy. Thank you so much for your support. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are delighted to welcome our friend Joe DeSena. Joe is the founder and CEO of Spartan, the world's leading endurance sports brand. He has built Spartan into a global fitness and wellness brand with a 10 plus million community of athletes across the globe. Under his leadership, Spartan's portfolio of brands has grown to include Spartan Trail, Deca, La Ruta, Tough Mudder, and Highlander. He's also a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book, 10 Rules for Resilience, Mental Toughness for Families, hit bookstores in 2021. You're going to see that we've spent some time with Joe and his family right away. There's a level of comfort here and honest discourse about and transparency about our failings as parents <laughs> and how we are literally trying to set up our kids for success by making them uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that was so fun about this conversation is Joe is, I don't know if we've ever talked to anyone who has as many crazy and funny stories to tell about making people, including kids, uncomfortable. 
The other thing is that when you're around Joe, he casts this spell and pulls you in. It doesn't matter if we're having dinner, you leave inspired, you leave like you feel like you want to challenge yourself. He casts some kind of mischievous magic where he really does allow people enough rope to go hang themselves. <laughs> From our own experience with our kids and racing, Joe does such a good job of inviting people in to discover their own greatness. Yeah, you know, Joe is one of the people I think we are most delighted to have been able to meet and become friends with on this crazy journey of working in the greater health and fitness and wellness space. And I think you all are really going to enjoy this conversation. We laughed a lot. So enjoy our conversation with Joe. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Joe, welcome to the Ready State podcast. What people may not know is that you and I are secretly best friends. We are, and it's no secret. Um, I try to tell everybody that I know, you know the Starrets? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm at their house. I eat cookies that their kids bake. I know that I'm in their pool. They tried to drown me once or twice, tried to freeze me out, sweat me out in their sweat box. Good cooks. You guys are good cooks. Food is always good at the Starrett house. Well, you can tell by uh, the fact that I am slow on the beast. <laughs> So we're just going to get right into it, but you actually mentioned that you were doing a speaking engagement yesterday and just about to tell us what that was. So let's hear it. So a couple of things, you know, when I grew up, my neighbor was the head of the banana organized crime family. I grew up ground zero for good fellas. So it was organized crime everywhere. People were doing, you know, 25 year bids. I was young. I don't know. I learned some things. My neighbor said, come over and clean my pool one day. So I went over there and he said, I'm going to give you three lessons in life. He said, number one, on time is late. You're supposed to be here at eight o'clock, you get here at 7.45. He said, number two, you go above and beyond. He said, I want you to clean the lawn furniture, straighten up the shed, the windows, even though I'm only paying you to clean the pool and other customers are only paying you to clean the pool, you gotta go above and beyond. And number three, never ask for money. Strange, you wanna get in business, you, you wanna ask for money. But I've carried those three lessons through my whole life. Obviously, I got great lessons from my dad, from other people, from my mom. But those really stuck with me because I was young, impressionable, and this was the boss. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's interesting because you hear a lot of stories about people actually, whether they get a lesson or like disciplined by someone else's parent, those are often the things you remember oh, the most, right. right? Like sometimes our own parents are just this want, 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 want in the background. But if you, you know, sometimes those outside people have the biggest impression. No doubt about it. And I purposely put people in front of my children to recreate what we just talked about. So anyway, fast forward 41 years from that moment, and I get a call from Grant Cardone. He's um, internet personality, Cardone Capital. He's done incredibly well, private jet. And his shtick is, you know, 10X your life, 10X your business, uh, pushes real estate. Does really well, has a, a pretty large audience. Somehow we became friends. And he hit me up and he said, hey, I got this big gig out in Vegas, you wanna come speak? And so my answer from that lesson from that wise guy was, yeah, no problem. I don't ask for anything, you know? Anyway, I don't really know what it is. You know, you guys know me for a long time. I'm like busy with my life. I'm busy with the business. My assistant goes, hey, you gotta be at the airport tomorrow at 6 a.m. For what? You gotta go do that Grant Cardone thing. I was like, oh, fuck. So anyway, jump on a plane, go out there, banging out emails in between. You know, it's embarrassing to say, but like I do these speeches. Sometimes I get on stage, I don't even know, like I don't have a plan or anything. I'm just like, start talking quick. <laughs> the parachute always assembles itself. It does. It assembles itself. 
I like that a lot. That's a good sentence. A plan assembles itself. So anyway, I'm waiting in the hotel room. My, my assistant texted me and said, hey, somebody's going to pick you up from the hotel room. I thought that was a little weird because that's never happened before. I usually show up at the stage wherever I'm supposed to speak, right? I don't know anything. No one's like mic'd me up or shown me a stage. Or I don't know what time, but somebody's going to be in my room. So these three seven-foot monsters show up at like 9 a.m. I mean, the biggest guys, bigger than you, Kelly. And <laughs> this is your life now. They've got like microphones and their wrists. And I'm like, yeah, what is this? A secret service or something? <laughs> yeah. Is this for me? Like you got the wrong guy. And they're like, oh, come on, sir. We know you. Oh, we love Spartan. I was like, you know, Spartan thought I was completely irrelevant at this point. And I'm not even joking. Like, this is bizarre. And we're going through back alleys and rooms and walking through kitchens. And then we get put in like a fancy black car and driven like a quarter mile, taken out and the door gets open for me. One of the monsters says, um, hey, you know, Dave Chappelle loves Spartan. He smokes too much, but he really, he wants to do a Spartan. He wants to meet you. And I was like, is this real? What? I don't even understand what's happening right now. And I get walked into this stage area. And I'm like, this is really strange because I hear a lot of noise on the other side of the screen. And I say to one of the monsters, like, how many people are in the room? Because I don't know anything. It's like, I think 20,000. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck am I going to talk about? <laughs> You're like, shit, I didn't make a PowerPoint. <laughs> it literally goes, hey, just make sure on the stage there's a six inch thing so you don't trip. And they like push me up the stairs. And this was yesterday morning. And I step over this six inch threshold and their fucking room is packed. And I walk on this catwalk that like a model would walk on into this circle in the middle. And there's people 360 degrees around me. There's people everywhere. <laughs> you were you're like, I'm Beyonce at a Beyonce concert. <laughs> I was so confused. And I just started talking. And the crowd responded so well that I started thinking in the first few minutes, and Kelly, maybe you guys have had this experience. I never have. They responded so well. It was like, you know, when we grew up, the TV shows had like fake clapping and laughter at the right moments, right? And they were clapping and laughing at the perfect moments. And I was like, is there a screen somewhere that's telling people to clap and laugh? Is there something in their <laughs> coffee? I said, this is so, and I told them all, I said, what are you guys drinking? This is unbelievable. I've never had a crowd like, like, hello. And they start cheering. And this is unbelievable. <laughs> and I went through my, my talk and I, a bunch of high fives on the way out. And then people came outside to take some pictures. And I said, this is, it's almost like I'm in the matrix. I'm not telling you because I'm like egotistic. I'm just telling you because it was unbelievable. That sounds crazy. Okay. What did you actually talk about? Do you even remember or did you someone black out? I hope someone wrote Did it you down. black out and you'll never be able to remember what you talked about? Oh, before I tell you what I talked about, this is the better part. Guess who came up after me, which I didn't know any of this. I don't know. Mark Warburg. Mark Warburg came up after me. <laughs> Guess who came up after him? Tell us. Tom Brady. Oh, makes perfect sense. <laughs> is that crazy? <laughs> Would it be weird if I asked what you were wearing? Is that weird? I was wearing the clothes I have on right now. I didn't change because I got in at one in the morning and I cleaned up and came to work with the same clothes on. We have this friend who <laughs> teaches real fighting for tactical officers, people like that. And he, what he said is real. Shout out to my friend Southnark. He says, look, I can't guarantee you this is a fight, but I can guarantee you 
an honest experience. And one of the things that you're describing is why people are so mad for the Spartan, because you, my friend, just had an honest experience. You didn't know what you were in for. Someone, someone talked into, hey, we're going to do this race. You'll be fine. You're fit enough. And then you got into this. People are shouting at you. They're cheering for you. And then you were running through a puddle. You just had that experience. When, how long has it been since you had an experience like that? I got to tell you, it's been a long time. I literally had to pinch myself yesterday. It was so surreal. You can see why people are such Spartan fans because they have an honest experience. I want to tell everyone that this is your MO to give people the real experience. So you, you come over to our house and uh, you guys are in town for something and you have one of George's cookies and you don't eat cookies, but you're like, Hey, I'm going to throw myself on this sword and eat one of George's cookies. I want to employ. And then you said, Hey, you should sell cookies at the Spartan race in San Francisco. And you are the boss. And so you said, oh, you're going to just sell 3,000 cookies and you're going to donate half the proceeds to charity. Work it out. And she had to work it out. You literally just set this up. Don't fall on your face. You're going to make me look bad. You're a family member. We're doing you a favor. And she had to work it out. She had to take two days off from school. She had to rent a commercial kitchen. She had to like, I mean, it was bananas. She was so smoked after Saturday selling cookies all day. And what I feel like is this is a thing where you put people into situations and trust that they will rise to the occasion. And you just did that thing for yourself. I agree with that. I do. And I did say to them yesterday as part of the speech, I'm remembering to answer Juliet's question was, I'm a big believer in fire ready aim. And I think that I did that for your daughter, for Georgia, for the cookie sales in San Francisco, but I do it for myself, my family. I'm a big believer in it. Like I almost feel like if you plan too much, which is contrary to what the military does and they're so successful at it, but if you plan too much, it sucks all the creativity and the fun out of it. That just like serendip, like we're just going to roll with this, makes it really interesting. And I think it's made me a more creative person. Here's a great one for you. Well, let's just keep going with these if it's okay. Yes. Last weekend, we had the winter death race on the farm. And so normally the way we would- Wait, Hold on. Just, Wait, we need you, five minutes to just- Can you tee it up of what is the death race? Let because some know. people may not actually know. So the death race- I started in 2005. And the reason I started it was business is a death race. You guys know it. I know it. Anybody who's an entrepreneur knows it's a death race. Like you just want to stick ice picks in your eyeballs someday. Some, many do. And what's the failure of most businesses? Oh, nine out of 10. They don't make it past three. I mean, it's just the likelihood of success is minimal. It'd be like going into the arena and the Coliseum, you and I, years and like, you know, one person is coming out at the end of the day, one. <laughs> That's right, one. <laughs> That's it. That's business. Yeah. So anyway, the death race was like, how do I completely torture people? How do I lie to them, turn their whole lives upside down the same way business does, the same way life does, and uh, they don't know what's coming next. There's no aid stations because I had done so many organized races myself, competed in marathons and ultra marathons and Ironmans and all this stuff. And everything was organized. Like you always had your banana when you needed it in the water. And I said, it's not life, right? And so the death race is going to turn that whole thing on its head. And it's continued on. And I've had some fun all over the world. Wait, can you explain when the death race ends? And how you win or when it ends? Yeah, first I'll tell you some fun stories. But um, I've moved it around the world. It mostly takes place in Vermont on our farm. It typically only happens once a year between end of June and July 4th. 
But then, I don't know, 10 years ago, I added the winter version really as a tune-up for somebody thinking of doing the summer. You should probably come out for 24 hours and just play around with us in the snow and see what you're getting into. So you're more likely to be successful in the summer. And then because we can't help ourselves, the winter has turned into just and it just craziness. It was supposed to be like a training camp, but it's turned into like Guantanamo, waterboarding, like just crazy shit. And it ends when I want it to end. It could be a year where we're like, you know what? Let's let everybody finish. Or you know what? Nobody's finishing. We're just going to keep going until everybody quits. And it really just depends on what we feel like. And that's what business does, right? Business, there's no rules in business, uh, it swipes the legs out under you. Your factory burns down when you need it most. Your best employees leave. Your competitor shows up across the street. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And so that's death race. One year, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, my uncle has a bullfighting ranch in Mexico. They raise 800 bulls. They're the toughest bulls in the world. They get shipped all over the world. Let's bring the death race to Mexico. I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't really want to leave Vermont. He said, yeah, we could have the bulls in the, and I said, oh, maybe I would go to Mexico then. So I invited everybody to Mexico City. And the idea was going back to what we talked about earlier, creativity, shooting from the hip. The idea was let everybody fly into Mexico City. We'll put them in really nice luxury buses for two hours north out of Mexico City. And then let's purposely have the buses break down. And now they're out on the street, on the highway. And the buses are stuck there. And they've got spectators with them or support crew. So let's say Kelly was doing the race and Juliet was support or Juliet was doing the race and Kelly was support. The support crew is obviously not dressed for a race, right? And so support and racers get off these buses and they're standing on the side of the road and I'm making believe like, oh, this is a nightmare. I don't know what we're going to do. And these two broken down trucks show up that normally transport bulls. And I say, well, I guess we got to use these trucks. Obviously, it's all planned behind the scenes. And I say to the spectator um, support crews, I said, listen, you guys either stay with the buses and go back to Mexico City or you come, but you're in the race now. You're no longer support. You're no longer spectator. You're in this fucking race. I think there was a husband and wife. They were on their honeymoon. Like they had no intention of uh, both of them doing it. Anyway, was not dressed properly for it. They all jump in. They all agree to it because they don't want to wait on the side of the road by these broken down, seemingly broken down buses. They get into the cages which are filled with like leftover materials from the bulls they had left behind, you know, just lots of shit. <laughs> and the trucks drive on this really bumpy dirt road for about 10 or 15 miles. And they back up to, if you could envision a concrete canal where the bull normally gets off these trucks and then can't see right or left, the canal's higher than their head. And then eventually the gate opens and they're released into the bullfighting ring. So what I did was I released all the humans into that canal. And then in the ring was a live bull and a bunch of red jerseys. Every participant, spectator, support crew, actual racer had to find their red jersey, their number. Let's say Juliet was 101, Kelly was 292. Your number was somewhere on the ground in that bullfighting ring with a live bull snorting and waiting for something. And we opened the gate and we let them loose and people started flying through the air and the bulls were, it was craziness. You gotta see the video from it. So that's just a taste of what we do. Now, somebody listening or watching, or even you guys are saying, Joe, that's like borderline insanity, like why? But I think it goes back to what you said earlier, Kelly, like that's an honest experience. And it was. Right, yeah. I think about you all the time, especially when I'm moving something awkward, 
one of my favorite events of the death race that I've heard of is that you gave everyone a huge eight by 10 piece of plywood and you said, carry this to the top of the mountain. And I don't know if you've ever carried a huge piece of plywood. It's basically the worst task on earth. Giving birth yeah. is like well, a vacation like cuts, comparing to- In order to be able to hold yes. cuts into your body. And, and anytime yeah, I worst. have to move something awkward like that, I'm like, Joe made people carry this up there. That's what I think of. But it's worse. We would only do that on a windy day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a giant sale. You know, you know what that makes me think about is, as you know, Kelly and I both worked as river rafting guides for many years. And well, we both did a lot of class four and class five trips. And it was super interesting to see because you'd get these groups of like big muscle dudes and you're like, yes, this is my day. Like, we're going to survive. We're going to make it. These guys are going to be fine if we flip. And it turns out that you really learn a lot about who people are when you flip them and they swim in a class four or class five rapid. And, you know, looks are deceiving. You know, often the people you think are going to function the best in those situations don't at all. And, you know, sort of like the quiet, unexpectedly unathletic looking person follows instructions and gets themselves out of the water and is helping to save all these other people. So I don't know what makes me think about that, but I think when you're talking about all the support people and being thrown into it. Just the chaos uh, of the day. Yeah, the chaos. You don't and know what's going to happen. You don't know what to expect and nobody knows what to expect. And I don't know, it just reminded me of that. No, but that's a great point. Our lives are so curated. I remember when my two boys, our two boys did their first Spartan race. They were probably five and three or four and two or something. We were in Austin, Texas. I'm the Spartan guy. We're the Spartan family. I'm trying to raise tough kids. And the gun goes off in the kids race and they start running. And about a hundred yards in, they hit their first mud puddle and they both stopped and they looked at me and I was like, what the fuck? Your kids are Spartan. Get in. But think about it. They had been told by mom and dad, me included, like, oh, don't get that dirty or don't do this or don't. And so even the Spartan guy is putting guardrails on the family. You don't even know you're doing it. And it becomes a very curated, sterile life, if that makes sense, right? We were running a river, I think it was the Klamath, and we had to portage a rapid called Dragon's Tooth. And our little daughter, Caroline, was terrified because Dragon's Tooth, and it's the one rapid you have to portage, and it's super gnarly. She was a little, like four, maybe. Four, yeah. Yeah. And we're running this rapid, and she, you can't just portage. You have to kind of scrape down in the eddy. So you're kind of swimming. You're kind of floating. There's the rapid. It's scary. There's this big movement. And she's already a little bit freaked out because there's a couple people with us who are a little freaked out. And in the eddy, there's a snake. No, 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 no. There were like five snakes in the eddy. <laughs> so like <laughs> she's terrified going around this rapid and kind of already crying. Snakes come out. <laughs> and uh, I tell you what, Caroline Starrett is one of the toughest human beings to date. And I'm always like, you can talk about the snakes in therapy, kid. Yeah, I mean, fun. that was the most blood curdling scream I've ever heard in my life was the, <laughs> the snakes. That's hot. I want to tell a quick story about an experience we had with you. And hopefully this can parlay a little bit into talking more about your parenting style. But we made a plan to meet up with you to do a Spartan race, a stadium Spartan race at the AT&T Park in San Francisco some years back. And I think it was maybe Charlie was with you. And he was nine or 10 or something at that point, roughly the same age as our kids. And our kids are going to do the race too. And you'd taken a red eye, basically. Yeah. And you'd taken a red eye and you just said, hey, just wait for us. You know, once we, uh, you know, we get there, we'll just do the race together. Like we'll do it as a group. And 
So you guys literally get out of the Uber in front of AT&T Park and Charlie's wearing Crocs. And you guys have like, you know, some you're little bags. Jeans. You're in jeans. And there's some Spartan staff there. You guys give them your very small bags. And we just proceed directly to the starting line. And you and Charlie did the entire thing in whatever you'd taken a red eye. You did the entire race with us wearing whatever you were wearing jeans. He wore Crocs the entire time. And we've always talked about that as a family. Like, man, talk about not being precious. You know, you guys didn't get there and have your energy bar and open up your hips and warm up and wear your perfect spandex. And, you know, we literally just bypassed all the spectators, went to the starting line and raced. And we've always thought that was so cool. You know where that comes from? I wouldn't have noticed it. You guys noticed it. Thanks for that. That comes from like the neighborhood and business. And like, I don't know, all those days when I was cleaning swimming pools at that young age, after that boss gave me the first, you know, his pool, there were days where employees didn't show up. And I had to get out there in a black, disgusting, you know, after the winter covered pool and figure out how to get the water and the frogs and it by myself and it's raining. And like, I might have the wrong clothes. It didn't matter. Like the customer didn't care. Business didn't care. Just get the job done, get paid and be able to pay your bills. And so I think that's where that came from. Plus my dad, my, I remember my dad one day, like he loved construction, loved it and loved having me and my sister around like, and sheetrock might be in our hair and we'd be going into a restaurant and we'd be a mess. And he'd say, listen, like we're human, just like everybody else. Like it doesn't matter. Maybe some people would listen and say, well, that's disrespectful to the other people in the restaurant. But it definitely taught me that, like, I don't pay attention. By the way, I have Spartan Crocs on now. I've probably run 1,500 miles in these. I literally, I don't even, and people say, you run in the. I don't know how you do that. I mean, how do you survive not wearing like $250 elite running shoes? You know, when I started doing 100 milers, I had forgotten my shoes once. Well, no, here's a better one. I never told you guys this. At the Eco Challenge, someone stole my shoes before the race. I did the entire Eco Challenge in bike shoes. And so imagine, imagine doing 350 miles in bike shoes, skipping across rocks, swimming, like, and then fast forward, I, I lost my shoes, I ran a hundred miler, and there was only a Walmart in this place in Virginia. So I bought like, I don't know, some sneakers that Walmart was selling in the middle of Virginia that were not the special one, you know, and you just, you do it, you get it done. I do want to ask a little bit about your approach to parenting. And then if you could also weave in, you told us a hilarious story once about hosting a summer camp for kids that I think that was a bit unexpected. And let me tee that up by just saying, I've had a, a lot of talks of late with adult men who are having this conversation about how do we prepare children for the world? And what does that look like? And you know, do you need to put things in front of them do we have to manufacture experience? I feel like there's a lot of people who are realizing that maybe we don't necessarily set our kids up for success. So that's the framework. Yeah, and so I, look, I think I wrote a book on parenting, uh, 10 Rules of Resilience with a doctor um, because I was afraid, my wife was afraid if I did it alone, number one, it wouldn't have been as good or thoughtful, but number two, I, what the hell do I know about parenting? I needed a tr an actual psychologist doctor next to me to help me. And she's awesome, Dr. L. So we wrote this book. But when I reflect back on it and I think about like, I'm definitely not the perfect parent. I'll give you an example of, of a mistake I've made, which goes right to your point, which is um, when they were very young, I definitely had the mindset then, hey, I got to throw them in the deep of it. They've got to 
go through the rapids and see the snakes, just like you described. But what I would do is remove all the friction to get to the rapids because, because we got to get in the rapids. So an example would be like, we're going skiing. We skied a lot. You guys kayaked a lot. We skied a lot. And I got to get the boots out and ready the night before. Everything's got to be organized because if we get organized, we can get in the car, we can get there efficiently and I'll go get the, the ticket and I'll pull everybody right up to the chairlift and we can get as many runs in as possible and then we could get whisked away and back to the house. And so I removed all the friction to and from the thing. And when I reflect back on it, I'm like, I had it all backwards. It wasn't the 15 ski runs we took that day that was important and teaching. It was actually all the things I removed. It was finding your boots, getting your boots on, uh, losing your glove, going up to the kiosk and buying your own lift ticket, skating yourself somehow, falling down the little hill to get to the chairlift. Like, but I removed all that friction and um, because I wanted to get as many ski runs in as possible, thinking that was what we were supposed to be doing during the day. So shame on me. When I look back, we have four children. When I look at my little one, who was last in line, got the least amount of energy from my wife and I because we're exhausted by the fourth one, she's most capable. Like we could drop her in Moscow right now and within two days she'd take out Putin. I mean, she is so <laughs> tight. You know, she's so figured out. Her and Georgia could be baking cookies together right now and like she's a machine because she was underparented. Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products, and that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach. Yeah, the app literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout. There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sport-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or Fact. run faster. There is a pain area. And we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts so you can just generally get more okay, supple so you're and killing awesome. It. You should talk about this app more often. <laughs> We started the original mobility project back in 2010, trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. And we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really re reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30 minute follow along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice and you can add in what you need. We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Back. Head on over to the readystate.com slash trial and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for $11.99. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. You know, we read this um, article when our kids, it was a little bit too late for us too. We read this article when our kids were maybe like six and three and it was... The kids in Peru. Yeah, it was sort of contrasting these parenting styles and it gave an example of kids at four years old in a tribe in Peru could go out on their own and hunt an animal and bring it back to the tribe and share it for and a meal. It and clean it. And then at, of course, the complete other end of the spectrum were American kids where we do everything for them and 
we've retarded them in many important ways. And then, you know, somewhere in the middle, they talked about like European, specifically French parents. And apparently it's like a European value to just kind of ignore your kid, right? Like they aren't always the center of attention. You know, they don't do everything for them. And they're sort of right in the middle of those two extremes. And at that point, at least one of our kids was in a car seat, I think Caroline, and then Georgia was in like a booster seat. And it had such an impact on us that from that moment forward, we're like, nope, you got to tie your own shoe and nope, you need to buckle yourself into your car seat. And sorry, dudes, if you don't know how to tie your shoe, you're going to have to wear Velcro shoes, which was like, you know, no way like that would be so embarrassing for them. So we were a little late to the game on that, too. I think we sort of did too much for them when they were really little, but we've tried to course correct, I think. And I will say that we did check their work when they buckled into the car seats. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, we checked their work. We checked their work, but, you know. Um, um, Jack is going. My oldest is going to go. Well, so the boys wrestle and the girls play soccer. And I had to check myself because wrestling is so much fun. But before you know it, it's like all we do is wrestle. And that's not really helping you for life. Yeah, you're getting some grit and resiliency training and you're fit as can be. But like, they're not going to the Olympics. At some point, wrestling ends, right? And so my oldest has a tournament coming up in March that coincides with this guy, Dan Pina. Anybody listening should check him out. He's an absolute madman. We, You guys would love him. He's got this conference, business conference going on for like 25, 35-year-olds in his castle in Scotland. I happen to know him. And so he said, yeah, yeah, send Jack. So I'm like, FFIO, Jack, just you know, figure out your flights, figure out your trains, make sure... There's enough time to get from one airport to the other and get on a, and you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of adversity. They're not out killing an animal in Peru. That's a lot, a lot of adversity. There's a lot of traps there. Right. So he's going to go figure it out and we're going to skip wrestling, which is hard for me. Isn't that crazy? It's hard for me because it's so much fun to watch them wrestle and be able to pat yourself on the back when they do well, even though you had very little to do with it to go man up. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, you know, as you know, both our kids are water polo players and we could not be more philosophically against sports spe- specialization, but it is hard. You realize when you're in it as a parent, you know, and you see maybe they have a little bit of potential. It's hard not to, and especially because we're competitive people and we love sports and we've fallen in love with the sport of water polo. It's actually hard to kind of self-correct, you know, and, and not become like that. How did we do, by the way, I don't want to mention the school or the daughter, but how did we do with uh, that school? Did it get sorted? It's okay. We can mention the daughter, Georgia, is into three schools, including one of her top choices, UT Austin. And we're still in a waiting game for the remainder of the schools. No, we haven't heard anything else. Yeah. Next month. Waiting. All right. Waiting. Which is really an interesting piece for us because it's just validation that we were good people and parents. Like that's all we're just, we're waiting around to find out if we passed the test. That's what it feels like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think Georgia is going to be fine. She's super stoked already. Georgia is going to be fine. She could always sell cookies, worst case, and do a great job. Those cookies are really tasty. The little Ukrainian grandmother who she rents from the commercial kitchen, not the big scale major kitchen she had to go to, but this little one close to us is already trying to sell Georgia the kitchen. I love it. Like she's already like, Georgia's my out. It's how, how I drop this kitchen. And Georgia's like, mm, I think I have bigger plans. I was just going to say, Dan Pina that I described in Scotland where Jack is going for his seminar, that's his whole MO is that there's millions of businesses around the world and folks like you and me don't have exit strategies. So before you know it, we find ourselves at 65 or 70 years old 
And we're like, what do we do with this thing? And so he's trying to teach young people, like you just got to knock on a thousand doors and you will find a business that you could own. And then who knows, slap a few of them together and you got yourself something real because most of us are idiots. And like my exit strategy is death. Your exit strategy is probably death. True fact. True no, fact. it's really important you say that because my exit strategy is to die before Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's part of my plan. You're going to have to run this business by yourself, woman. Okay, so I want to hear about the summer camp. I need to hear some stories about the summer camp or I really want you to share some. So summer camp was born um, the year before COVID. I started saying, you know, we got this death race thing. Why don't we have death camp for kids? <laughs> and I know it sounds ridiculous as a name and the branding and this and that, but it's also kind of like Dragon's Tooth that you mentioned earlier. It's got a little bit of a, a sex appeal. So friends and family the first year, we had some fun. It was like a 12 hour. Second year we had COVID. And so I was like, we got to do it like four weeks. We got to have death camp for four weeks. I went a little wider with friends and family. Some people I didn't know, rallied them up, girls and boys, brought my friend from the military who's definitely a little nuts, mountain warfare expert in the cold weather, death race participant, this guy. And the mission was wake him up early make it 15 minutes earlier every day. So if you start at 6.30 in the morning, next day, 6.15, day after six, before you know it, we're getting them up at midnight and uh, put them to bed early. To give you an idea of the workload, as soon as they wake up, they're in ice cold water. We've got a spring fed pond that's in the 40s year round. And uh, they're in ice cold water right out of bed. They're shivering. I did that in camp in Germany. I totally see the truth of it. Yeah. I, it's true. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Then right out of it, they're carrying rocks up the mountain, which is getting them warm. We might throw a Murph in before breakfast, literally every day, we're gonna get Murph done. We're gonna stop and do push-ups and rope climbs. We have rope climbs on the mountain in the woods, but not just one or two. By the end of the camp, they'll have done, you know, three, 400 rope climbs. They'll have hiked, you know, 50 plus miles. They've done thousands of burpees, thousands, sometimes three, four, 500 at a clip. They've got death race bibs on because they're in death camp. And then we've got a specialty moment during the, where they might learn soccer or play soccer or wrestle so that I could make sure we get the wrestling and the soccer in. There was a component we added called fight club for the kids that didn't know how to wrestle. And surprisingly, the fight club, that hour after lunch every day became the most sought after uh, thing we did every day. They loved fight club. We would just pit two kids next to each other and um, they had to get in a fight. It wasn't like black eyes and scratching or anything. It was, you know, there were rules. A buddy of mine who teaches wrestling who's an Olympian would set some rules in place that weren't too dangerous. We had a few broken bones. No punching the face, no kicking the groin. Kumite. <laughs> there you go. So unbeknownst to me, after like three or four days of this first four week long death camp, well, every night I would give the kids their phones back, you know, like, for an hour, I said they should be able to get in touch with their friends and mom and dad. But I didn't realize what was happening. Like five or six days into it, my wife's like, I gotta come up there, what's going on? The whole neighborhood is questioning. I said, what are you talking about? The kids are calling neighbors and parents and every, they, they need to be picked up. What are you talking about? So I call a friend of mine whose kid is with me. He's like, yeah, we've been getting the text. I said, well, send me the text you're getting. Cause I don't know any of this. I just, I'm dealing with the kids every day. I don't know what they're texting their parents and friends. And my friend sends me the texts, my friend Bernie and his wife, Joyce, and I'm dying <laughs> because they are just like us. They're like you and like me. 
and they're not taking the bait from their son. So their son, Patrick, sends a text that starts with, are you sure you know this guy? Meaning me. And they're like, yeah, why? I know him, you know, 20 something years. What's up? This is not a camp. This is prison. You need to call this guy and get me out of here. Tell him we had a family affair you forgot about. This guy is killing us. He's torturing everybody. And they're like, sounds like you might get a six pack. You know, it sounds like a Peloton class. Fuck you, mom and dad. You wouldn't make it here a day. You're sitting on your couch. You have a nice meal in front of you. Oh, do you want us to call him and say it's a little too tough for Do not do that. Do you know what he'll do to me if he finds out I texted you? And I am dying when I read these texts. So, so I immediately took all the phones away for good. And then we went five or six days with no phones at all. This is a great experiment. And they were doing a great job. The kids were crushing it. They weren't complaining. And um, I said, you know what? Get them ice cream. Let's get them ice cream. They deserve a win here and there, you know? We put out some vanilla and chocolate ice cream. I'm not big on like all choices or sprinkles or any of that shit. I put their phones out. I figured while they got ice cream, they could get their phones and then we get back to work in the morning. They didn't touch the ice cream. They all went right to their phones. And it was so interesting to me because it was like the phones are more addictive than sugar. It's unbelievable. So we've been doing it every year. A big Boy Scout troops uh, came out last year, loved it. I've got to restrict it now because it's, it's in pretty high demand. I only do it because I want my kids surrounded by other people being tortured. And, um, and you come out strong. Kids come out strong. I mean, ripped. And they come out and what do they say about their experience afterwards? Takes a few days for many of them. You know, again, family, friends, I'm trying to think of Matilda, 12 years old last year. No way is she going. No way is she going. She comes. She's there. We're about seven or eight days in. She wants to quit. So I say, all right, Matilda, no problem. I said, um, in order to quit, let me pull up my app. I said, I got the quitting form here. I said, um, okay, number one, name. She gives me name, date of birth, address. I'm faking it, obviously. I said, um, what's the reason for quitting, Matilda? She says, um, I'm bleeding. I said, no, you're not. She goes, I'm bleeding inside. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, bleeding inside. I make believe I type it in the app. I said, um, the quitting office is open tomorrow. She doesn't know I'm faking this whole thing. The quitting office is open tomorrow, 5.15 a.m., Red Barn. See you there, and they'll get you all sorted. Of course, she doesn't wake up at 5.15. She misses it. She's completely <laughs> upset. I'm like, listen, quitter's office is not open again until Wednesday. Today's Sunday. You missed it. So she's like rallied and organized for Wednesday, and she's going to wake up on time. And Wednesday comes, and of course, like she misses it, right? Now she's missed two appointments with the quitter's office, and we're like five more days into this thing, and she's got to talk to her parents. And I don't want to put her on the phone with the parents, like because I know what's going to happen. And somebody, one of the counters, somebody gives her an iPad to connect without me watching with her mom. And the second, I happen to be coming by, the second she connects visually with mom, she completely melts, starts crying, shoulders shaking, the whole thing. And I happen to know the mom. She's like family for us. And I'm like, this is not going to work. And I disconnect the phone. <laughs> I just disconnect. Matilda finishes the damn thing. Another, whatever, five, six days. Gets the whole thing done and dusted, and she's coming back. She's coming back this year. The quitter's office is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Like, did you just think of that on the fly, like in the moment? The plan assembles itself. Isn't that great? <laughs> on the fly. Yeah, what happened, you guys know Zach Evanash. He had sent me some kids. 
He's the underground straight strength training guy. He'd sent some kids up from New Jersey and they were tough. They were wrestlers. I'm in the barn early. I do my workout. I'm on my computer. And one of the kids showed up really early, like 5.30. Not, and I'm, I'm watching him walk across the field. There's no, like, everybody else is in the cold water. They're carrying rocks. I'm like, why is this kid coming over to the barn? And he comes over and I, I get the sense he probably wants to quit. I opened the sliding glass door and I said, yeah, could I help you? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm done. I said, office isn't open. I'll see you in two hours. And I closed the door on him. <laughs> and he went back out and he got through another two days. That's how that quitter's office thing came to be. It's amazing. There's some thing there that the kids start to appreciate and understand. They're belonging, they're suffering together. But how can we as parents do a better job of not having to wait for death camp to send our kids away? Because the phone thing, you, as you say, is very interesting. Yeah. One of the things that we started realizing is that when we took our kids on these big desert wilderness rivers, there's no cell phone at all. So we just were like, well, you can have your phone, but it just doesn't work. And that ended up being a real aha for moment for us because at the end, our kids are like, eh, you know, whatever. You know, we put Caroline in a two-week outward bound trip this summer where, you know, seven days on a big river, seven days in the mountains. And, you know, she really comes back desensitized from all that phone stuff. And so we just had to create what we call a constrained environment. There's no choice. There is no phone. You know, I mean, I think it's almost that you have to do that with a, just say, hey, there's no cell service up here. Sorry, it doesn't work. How can parents, do you think, titrate up their kids or is do, do as humans, we have to go into that cold water ourselves every single time. You have to have a death camp experience no matter who you are and how well prepared you are. A couple of things. One is I didn't know this, but one year I had um, Dr. Mark, can't think of his last name, neurosurgeon, talk to the kids. And I didn't know what I'm about to tell you was going to come out over the Zoom call we did. He said, you have to finish this. And I said, why, Dr. Mark? And he said, under the microscope, when I'm looking at brains, I'm a neurosurgeon, we can see tracks that are laid by doing hard things and finishing them. We also see gaps when you don't finish the hard thing. And the younger you are, and the harder things you do at those ages, the more tracks you'll have, which will help you finish hard things later in life. And so as a parent listening, we have to do it, right? If you know the biology of your child is changing by having them do hard things, we have to do it. And so the question is how? I think you got to model it, number one. Like you can't be sitting on the couch smoking cigarettes every day and then expecting the kids to go out, right? And then two, you got to create those environments, like you said, you know, actual environments out in the woods, whatever it may be, New York City, take your own plane, you know, whatever, uh, pay for your own lift ticket whatever you could afford or do in your life that gets them out of their comfort zone. But then three, you've got to create environments where there's other kids around them that are doing similar things. Like the ancient Spartans, when I talked to the professors at Cambridge, said, like they realized the society would never have worked. That hardcore society that required, you know, 13 years straight of training from seven years old to 20 years old. And then the way they lived, so minimalist, would never have worked if everybody wasn't bought in. You know, if you live above a gym and everybody in your building goes to the gym, you're probably getting sucked in and going to the gym. This is what we do. Right? If you live above a bar and everybody's in the bar, you're probably getting sucked into the bar every day. So you got to surround yourself. And it's fictional for what I'm describing. I create this craziness in my life and the death camp. And, but um, I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out if it worked. That's right. 
That's what people always say. You know, they ask us parenting questions and we're like, hey, call us back when our kids are like 25 and 30 and maybe we can report live whether anything we did was successful. You know, we're still deep in, we're deep in the experiment right now. Okay, so you mentioned Spartan. We haven't talked about it at all. Maybe you could just give our listeners a quick backstory of how did you go from running a pool business to the Spartan race and what's going on? You know, when I was young, my mom was looking for a different way of life. We grew up in, in that good fella's neighborhood and um, she found a guru, an Indian guru at a health food store who had introduced her to this idea of like meditating for long periods of time, fasting for long periods of time, cold showers, way before it was cool. And one of the things was running. And this guy put on a 3,100 mile foot race around a one mile loop in Queens, New York that still exists today. So I had introductions to long, arduous, ridiculous, physical, mental challenges at a young age. Didn't want any part of it. I just wanted to make money. Figured out a way to sell the pool business, make it to Wall Street, start making some money. It's really what I wanted. And um, quickly found life was not what I thought it was. I was getting a little overweight. I didn't feel as optimal. Money, money, money could start to wear on you. And so uh, I started seeking those things that my mother was preaching in those earlier years. I started doing hot yoga. I started doing these crazy races all over the world. And I felt so alive. Uh, I would suck people into doing them with me. And I started to build relationships that were incredible. I got to meet myself and um, pressure test myself and start to build what felt like integrity. And I eventually sold that business on Wall Street that I built, met my wife, moved to Vermont, bought a farm, and then was quickly bored and thought I should put on races. I should put on something that changes people's lives because I love being out in the woods. I love hiking mountains. I love carrying heavy shit, pieces of plywood, bags of cement. Whatever. I just, I don't know, I just love it. And so for 10 years, from 2000 to 2010, I would lie to people to come up to the farm in Vermont. I would tell them, oh, we're gonna have a barbecue weekend. Because if I told them that we were gonna like carry heavy things up the mountain or run 20 miles, or they didn't wanna come. So I would lie and then I'd wake them up Saturday morning at 5 a.m. They'd be like, why are we getting up at 5 a.m. for barbecue? I said, well, we gotta carry the barbecue to the top of the mountain. They didn't know they were the ones being barbecued, right? And so I would torture people over those 10 years and it wasn't a viable business. Like I just couldn't get people to do it. In 2010, I changed the format from anything goes, I changed it to military inspired obstacle race, barbed wire crawl, climb ropes, which sounded very silly to me upon first being whispered to by a friend of mine who said, you know, you should put on a military, that sounds silly, but I did it and uh, 700 people showed up, which was more people than I had the entire decade before and then 2000. And, and then before you know it, you know, we added a race in Slovakia and Canada and UK. And I don't know, by 2019, we're in 45 countries, you know, million plus participants every year. And, and then we were lucky enough to buy out our competitor, Tough Mudder. We added trail running and all these other things. And it became an incredibly fulfilling and amazing business. But then COVID hit, which was a disaster other than death camp being born, you know, shut down in 45 countries, absolute disaster. I'm still feeling the pain from it. And, uh, and I'm digging my way back. We're actually seeing really good signs. Um, we're inversely correlated to the economy. So the worse the economy does, the better we do. We pray for stock market crashes. When things are very jubilant and you know, government sending you money and you don't have to go to work, they're less likely to wanna to crawl under barbed wire and do hard shit. When times are tough, maybe rather than going to splurge on an expensive vacation and go to Disneyland, they consider doing stuff that we offer. 
Yeah. And I just have to give you some props. We've told you this before, but Kelly and I are not just friends with you, but we're actually fans of the Spartan race. We've done a bunch ourselves. We've done them with our kids. And I think what maybe people don't realize until they've done one is that to me anyway, it's often more about the community and the overall experience than the torturing your body part. And at least that's been our experience. You know, we've never done these competitively. We're always just in with the general population. And every time we've done it, you know, we meet people, people that we're still connected with, the amount of encouragement and support from strangers we've received. You know, Kelly and I always talk about how we were we were hiking all the way from the base of um, Squad now Palisades to the very tippy top to go up to where the obstacles were. And you know, we were hiking up with a 300 pound woman wearing a unicorn costume, just chatting away. And, you know, here we were out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, it was, you know, all body types, all fitness levels. Everybody was so welcoming and so encouraging of everybody else. And to me, that's, that's like what has, what's so special, just even the way the races are started. Um, it's just like, it's an experience to be had. And the community piece is what's, what's, you know, hard to describe until you've done one yourself. No, it's amazing. It is an amazing community. I got to pinch myself every time I go out there. I remember, I remember those times seeing you and your husband out there with me in Tahoe or whatever the event may have been. And, And those are amazing, honest moments as Kelly described. So if you're out there and you just don't understand it, and you're like, why would I possibly get dirty? Why would I possibly crawl into barbed wire? It doesn't make any sense. We've had a tagline for decades, which is you'll know at the finish line. And so I would challenge you to reach out to Kelly and Juliet, and um, it's on me. Whether you want to do a Tough Mudder, a Spartan, a Deca Trail, doesn't matter, it's on me. Just ask them for a race entry. Why would I possibly do that? Why would I give you a free entry? It's the gateway drug. You're going to become addicted. You'll probably buy a hat and a t-shirt. And, uh, and before you know it, I bump into you five years from now and you're like, hey, I was that guy. I was that girl that, that, that heard the podcast. I've done 65 races now. And uh, I hear it every day, everywhere. There was a guy in our office over here, came in, um, runs Microsoft's virtual reality business, you know? And the last person you'd expect, he's literally done almost 100 Spartan races. I'm on a plane, I bump into the CMO of Home Depot. Their family's done 40 Spartan races. like. It's unbelievable. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, we use orange buckets from Home Depot in our races. Could you please sponsor them? I'm tired of buying buckets. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, just started watching this really crazy Korean show called The Physical 100, where they took. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting. It's physique driven. It's very strange, but it's, it's awesome. But everyone walks in and they're all eyeballing each other in the first episode. They're all like giving each other the stink eye. Who's this athlete? And look how jacked they are. And then they have to do this simple test, just hang from a, a pull-up rig for whoever long, whoever the longest. And what's interesting is immediately the whole dynamic changes where people are like, you did a really good job. I didn't know you could do that. And then the, people are hugging each other and they're like, that was great. And wow, it was so hard. And all of these extreme athletes from their Olympians, their superstars, MMA fighters, once they've done the thing together, they are different. And I heard someone say, uh, who was talking about the TV, they're like, yeah, the first first episode was kind of dumb, the first challenge. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand what they did with that. They, by having a common shared suffering experience, they suddenly were a family and there was risk. And when they had to put someone out of the race and fight, that was it. I hate 
organized fun. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I'm like, oh, you're going to give me an experience now. Okay. And every single time I go to the Spartan race, I'm like, I'm having an experience. I'm not being ministered to. It's honest. And I always come out transformed. And when I see someone, they're like, you did it. I did it. We did it. And I think we just need a lot more of that. Well, I think the other thing I'll say too, just to you know, anyone listening to this, is just how accessible it is. I mean, you don't need to be a runner. You can hike the whole thing. If you can't do any of the obstacles, you can do burpees. You know, I mean, there's just like, it's for everyone, you know, and you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to know how to climb a rope. You know, those are all things you can learn if you decide you want to, but it really is very accessible. I mean, you have to be able to like move your body through space, but there's so many options and people are there to help and support and you know, I think it's it really is for anyone who just wants to go have a cool experience. I'm glad you're still around. I don't know if you're going to die or not in this uh, post-COVID dig out. But uh, man, we are very, very thrilled to be friends with you, that our families are friends and that you keep putting this out for people to trip on. I got to pinch myself that I'm friends with you guys. My son got hurt. You shipped over a whole bunch of equipment at a huge expense. I couldn't even believe it. And you said, uh, hey, Joe, you, you help a lot of people. We want to help you. And I can't think of any instances in my life where that happens. So you guys are family and, um, and things really get tough. I know I could eat cookies at your house and probably sleep over. Anytime. You guys are awesome. Thank you, my Thanks, friend. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.